If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to pick up in the book of Acts chapter 6 and uh, just continuing to march through this great book together. And so uh, open your Bibles there to Acts chapter 6. We'll look at the first seven verses. Uh, Jim, thank you for that wonderful prayer. And I do want to thank our church family. Uh, just I've had so many people that have just sent me messages and have told me they're praying for me and my family. And uh, we had uh, my aunt's funeral yesterday. And so uh, trying to get some closure through a, a, really, a really rough week in our, in our family. But I've told several of you this, and I want to tell you this. The greatest thing that you can ever say to me is that I'm praying for you. That's uh, the greatest thing that you could ever do for me is to continue to pray for me. And I know many of you are faithfully praying for me as I, as I pray for you as well. So um, thankful to be part of this church family. Thankful to be able to preach this great book. And so as we look at Acts chapter 6 this morning, the title of this message is Servant Leadership, the Heart of a Healthy Church. Servant Leadership, the Heart of a Healthy Church. There's a lot going on here. And so let's just go ahead and start by reading the first seven verses in Acts 6, and then we're going to walk through this passage together. And I know there's going to be some really good practical application, as we always try to do here, um, to, that you can take with you to put into practice, to, to be part of creating a culture at this church, to be part of that healthy church. And so Acts 6, 1 picks up right here, and it says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, meaning the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nic Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible is a true book, and this is a historical account of the church. And part of the, the reason why we accept the scriptures, this is just one of the many reasons why we accept the scriptures as being true and inspired and errant and infallible, they're reliable and trustworthy, is because the Bible contains all kinds of embarrassing information. It contains all kinds of information that we as humans would really probably rather not uh, put in there about ourselves. If you're writing a book about yourself, you don't want to be that forthcoming and honest about how certain things happen in your life. But yeah, we see in the Bible, when you read the Gospels, you read the, the book of Acts, it's, it's very clear that they didn't try to cover up or sugarcoat anything. And right here in Acts chapter 6, we see an example, you know, it would be from a man's perspective, you know, the, the history that we would write would be like, yeah, Jesus died, he was raised from the dead, he gave us the Holy Spirit, and you know, we lived happily ever after, and there was never a problem in the world, right? And that's just not reality. And so I appreciate the, the, the uh, authenticity and the transparency of the writers of the New Testament writing the truth, 
giving historical accurate accounts because when we see here in Acts chapter 6 is that we've seen a lot of great things. Now, we did, we did run across Ananias and Sapphira as the devil really began to try to work in their life to bring some, some deceit and some division in the church. And so that was kind of the first hiccup that the church had. And then here in Acts chapter 6 now, we're seeing even more uh, what we're beginning to see is division in the church as complaints began to arose. And I appreciate that because it's real and this is what we deal with in every church all across America. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Every church has its own issues, its own struggles, because it's full of people. And when there's people that are gathered together, you're going to have problems. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 6, okay? So despite the fact that they're on fire for Jesus and God is increasing the church in number and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church and great things are being done for God, at the same time we see here there's a problem that arises. And we're going to appreciate that as we begin to look at this passage of Scripture together. Now, before we jump into the passage, let me set some historical context for you because it is important that we understand who are these Hellenists that Luke is talking about and who are the Hebrews, Okay, so let me just give you a a little background on what is being communicated here, because if you don't really know the context of the Hellenist and the Hebrews, then this may not make as much sense. So let me just spend a second trying to give you some background as to why this conflict really began to arise within the body of Christ, within the church. Okay, so if you back all the way up to Uh, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., two very important dates in the Old Testament. 722 B.C., uh, at this time, if you remember, the kingdom of Israel, after Solomon died, what happened to the kingdom? It split. There was a northern kingdom that retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom called itself Judah. And so you have, now you have a northern kingdom being run by its own kings, and you have the southern kingdom, Judah. Well, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, they conquered the northern kingdom, they took most of the Israelites and the tribes there that were living in the northern kingdom, they took them out of the land and dispersed them throughout parts of their other provinces and nations. Well, the southern kingdom survived a little bit longer, but not much, because in 586 B.C., the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, you've probably heard his name, they come into Judah, to the southern kingdom, after three attempts, they finally breached the city walls, they ravaged the city, they burned the city, they could destroy the temple, and what did they do to the people there in Judah? They actually took them as well out of Judah into the provinces of Babylon. This is what's called the diaspora of the Jews or the disbursement of the Jews. Now, it's important that you understand that because that has everything to do with what we're talking about here in Acts chapter 6 with the Hellenists and the Hebrews, okay? So think, picture this in your mind. The land of Israel, after the exile, there were some Israelites who returned back to the land. If you read the book like Ezra in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, these are names that you're probably familiar with. This was part of the group of the exiles that returned back to the land. They actually began to rebuild the temple, and they began to try to reestablish the Jewish faith and community there in their homeland. And so these were the people, the descendants of these people who had returned back to the land to retain their Jewish identity. That's who you can understand in this passage as being the Hebrews. They were very faithful people, very faithful followers of God. They were very proud, uh, very proud of their heritage, very proud of their homeland. And so they had come back and they had tried to reestablish the Jewish way of life in Israel. Okay. Now, what about the rest of the Jews who had been scattered and dispersed all throughout all these other provinces and nations through these exiles? Well, that's what we call the Hellenists. 
for the most part, the people, the Jewish people who went and were dispersed all throughout other provinces and nations, they retained most of their Jewish faith. That's what's unique about the Jewish people is that they don't easily assimilate into other cultures and uh, belief systems. They retain their identity for the most part. However, when Alexander the Great, around 300 B.C., when the Greeks conquered the known world, this is what the Greeks began to do. They were not satisfied with just occupying territory. When they came into your land or your country and they conquered your nation, guess what they did? They wanted to make everything that you did and everything that you were about, they wanted to make you Greek. That means that they would train you in Greek language. They would train you in Greek art and culture. And, and all of this way of life would have been, they would have tried to make you as Greek as possible. Okay? So picture yourself as a Jew living in another nation. You're, you're part of the disbursement, the diaspora. Alexander the Great conquers that nation. They began to introduce the Greek culture, and that was what was called Hellenization of these other nations. And so many of the Jews who were living in these other nations, they became Hellenized. What does that mean? It means they began to communicate and speak primarily the Greek language. It means they would have adopted some of the culture of the Greeks. Now, they still maintained their Jewish roots and their Jewish identity, and they still, most of them, were faithful to believe in God and worship Yahweh, the one true God. However, they were a little bit different in practice and in their cultural ways than the Hebrews. Why? Because the Hebrews were in their home communities. They were in their home nation. And they were very proud of making sure that they didn't let any of that Greek culture infiltrate into their way of life. And so when you see here in the local church, now you're kind of fast forwarding hundreds of years later. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter begins to preach and the, and the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, remember, they're speaking in other what? In other languages. Well, that's part of the diaspora. All of these Jews who had come into, back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they speak different languages. They had adopted many of the languages of, where they, of the nations in which they live. So when the apostles are preaching the gospel in their own language, you see, they reached a lot of these Hellenistic Jews, and, and they were saved and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so now you have a church that is born right here in Israel of Hebrews, Okay, and Hellenists. Now, they, they all were Jews for the most part. I know that gets really confusing, right? Remember, Jews, or when we talk about Jews or Hebrews, that is their ethnicity. That has everything to do with your ethnic background. That means if you're Chinese, if you're African American, if you're Caucasian, that's our what? That's our ethnicity. So it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your religious beliefs. It's your ethnicity. And so when you see that you had Hebrews... They were the ones who spoke the Hebrew language. Aramaic was the, the common language of the Hebrews in the, of that day. And then you had the Hellenists, okay? They were the ones who primarily spoke Greek. They had been kind of uh, shunned and outcast a little bit by the Hebrews because they said, you know, y'all have allowed this, this pagan Gentile culture to basically uh, infiltrate your way of life. And so you can see from the beginning that there is a, a little bit of tension that's starting to emerge right here in the church. And so that I wanted to give you guys that background so that when you see what's happening right here in Acts chapter 6, you have a better understanding of, of seeing what was happening in this dispute or this complaint in the early church. So, number one, as we get started, the enemy will use 
any and every means possible to destroy the unity in the body. That goes for Christ's church, and that goes for the early church. You see, the enemy, the devil, is always lurking around, looking for someone that he can devour. He's looking for a way to get a foot in the door, to find some angle. He's trying to find some opportunity to create dissension and division in God's church. And so here you have this situation where the unity of the body early on is being threatened right here, probably for the very first time. The unity of the body is being threatened for the first time. The enemy will do everything that he can do to divide God's people. And this is for obvious reasons that we understand that when we're divided as a people, as a local church, when we're divided, we're much weaker, we're much prone, we're much more vulnerable to attack, we're much more vulnerable to dissension and division. And you know, I mean, it's like united we stand, divided we fall. We all understand that. And so that's why the enemy is always looking for a way to create division in the body. He wants to divide and conquer because he knows that when we're divided and we're, we're too busy bickering and complaining and fighting amongst each other, our minds are, are off and we lose focus on our mission at hand, which is to fulfill the Great Commission. So that's what we have here. We have a case of social and cultural prejudice that's taking place in the church. Wow, we've never seen that happen in the church before, have we? Social and cultural Prejudice. So you begin to see these factions, okay? So you have the Hellenists over here. And they're, they're complaining to the apostles and saying, listen, our widows, they're not getting their daily distribution of food. Now remember, what's going on? Why, the, why do people even need daily distribution of food? Well, you have widows and orphans, and you have a lot of people who put their faith in Jesus. And when, the minute as a Jew that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you renounced basically your Jewish faith and many of your family members, you lost your job, many of your family members would disown you, you would lose property, you would probably lose all of your material possessions. And so there was a great amount of need at this point in the church because so many people were willing to trust Jesus and follow him, but they, it would cost them everything. And so now the apostles are trying to put together a plan because remember, the church at this point is what? It's rapidly growing. Did you catch that in the first part of Acts 6? It was increasing. Astronomers said it was, it was increasing in number when the disciples were increasing in number. So Luke, it got to the point where, hey, I'm giving you specific numbers. 2,000 were added to the church. 3,000 were added to the church. At this point, it's just saying, look, there's just a whole lot of people getting saved. It's just a whole lot of people. A lot, lot more and more people are just being added to the church every single day. So the numbers were starting to get a little bit out of hand, if you can imagine. I don't know if the disciples were really prepared to take on these kind of numbers. And so when you have this kind of growth and this kind of activity, okay, now we have people involved and now we have little groups involved and we can understand how this social cultural prejudice began to emerge. Now, what are some contemporary examples of social and cultural prejudice that we see here in the church today? Unfortunately, we still see, it. We see racial prejudice in the church today, where you have the Sunday morning can be one of the most segregated days of the week in the United States of America. I don't, I don't think that's right. But that still exists here in the United States of America, where there's these cultural, racial prejudice. Here's another big hot-button issue in the church. Just music, right? Contemporary music as opposed to traditional music. 
Man, you start talking about people's music and, and people get upset and people get very, um, you know, uh, loyal to their way of music. And before you know it, you have two groups of people. Oh, this is the people that love all that modern stuff that doesn't make any sense. And then over here, you got the group of people who are more traditional. and They're singing the good old hymns that we've sang for years and years and years and years. Well, listen, it should be both and, right? I mean, as a worship pastor, I want to commit that to you guys, that we do try to continue to appreciate and embrace the older hymns that have been so faithful and so good in the local church, but there's really some good new music out there as well. But again, that's one of those hot-button issues in the church where you start to see groups and factions, and you start to see there's some prejudice that may be involved in those kind of things. You can see it in the age gaps. I can, you know, one of the things that breaks my heart is to see younger generations not identifying with the older generation and vice versa. And so you begin to see how these things can begin to emerge in, in the local church where you start to have division in the church. And let me tell you something. If we're not careful, the devil will look for every single opportunity that he can right here in Christ church to find just one foothold, one opportunity to try to stir something up. And there's been plenty of that that's happened. Over the years in this church, and listen, it happens in every church, doesn't it? And if we're not careful, we can allow the devil to get a stronghold in this church and to create division in the church. Now, um, there's a quote. It says this, the Hebrew Jews, the Hebraic Jews, had a prejudicial sense of superiority over the Grecian Jews because of their birthplace, their language. And this is what's key, the lack of communication between the two groups fostered suspicion. And so one of the reasons why the, Hebrew, the Hebrews and the Hellenists didn't really see eye to eye, and maybe there was some suspicion there, is because they didn't communicate very much. They didn't cross over very much. So you can see already in the local church, so many people are coming to know Christ, but people are already beginning to form their own cliques, right? That's never happened here, has it? Little cliques, little groups, people were going to gravitate to the other people that they feel most comfortable with. We see that happening all the time in the church, and that is an opportunity for the devil to create division. Now, the Hellenists are feeling neglected. Their widows apparently were not getting the daily distribution of food that they were supposed to get. In other words, there was some type of injustice going on, at least according to them. So they bring a complaint to the apostles. So we see here in Acts chapter 6 one of the most profound truths that the Bible's ever shared, that from the very beginning in church, there's been complaining. Can you believe it? From the very beginning, when church began, there's been squabbling and griping and complaining and gossiping. All that stuff that we, we hate to see in the life of the church, but we know that it's there and we know that it's real. And so it was happening in the early church, just like it is very prone to happen here and so I want to tell you something as a pastor. Sometimes, I love you. Sometimes y'all wear me out. You just do. Sometimes when people are complaining and griping and grumbling and, and in that negative frame of mind as a pastor, I love, just like a real family. You know how it is when you, when you have a family and, and there's just contention in the house and there's division in the house and the home is just not at peace and it just wears you out in exhaustion. Let me tell you something. Sometimes being a pastor and, and shepherding sheep, knowing how much I love you and how much I care about you, I want you to understand that it can wear your pastors out and your leaders out. But here's the thing I want to get down to, okay? Good leaders 
This is your second point. Good leaders are able to discern legitimate complaints from illegitimate complaints and then act accordingly with wisdom and humility. Now, this is key to this whole message. Good leaders will be able to recognize, is this a legitimate complaint as opposed to, is this, this something, somebody that's, that's just discontent or maybe they're just being acting selfish or immature or whatever it may be. As a good leader, we have to be able to identify, is this a legitimate complaint? Because let me tell you something, not all complaints are created equal. They're just not. And if we're not careful as leaders, if we got bogged down in every single felt need and want that every single member of our church had, let me tell you something, nothing would ever get accomplished, would it? But in this situation, this is one of the things I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, is that we can be assured that the Hebrews were at the very least being inconsiderate of the Hellenist. And at the very worst, they were purposefully leaving them out because of their prejudice. So picture this. Every day, the widows and orphans would come to get their food. Because remember, they, they're depending on the charity of the church to feed their, to feed their families and to feed their, their children. And you have the Hebrews over here, and maybe they're in control of the food ministry, the food distribution. And as the Hellenists would come up to get their food, they would walk up and they would be like, oh, sorry, we're all out today. We don't have anything for you knowing that they probably had something, or they were giving their own people, their own Hebrew people, extra food and leaving the Hellenists out. And so this had to take some time, and this probably went on for a little while. And finally, the Hellenists, they came to the apostles and said, listen, something's bad wrong here. We're getting neglected with something. They're leaving us out. They're not giving us the daily distribution of food. And so what I see here is that this was a legitimate complaint. This complaint had some substance to it. And we need to understand that. Part of the problem in the church, as I said, is that not all complaints are created equal. Why is that? If you have a chance, turn over to James chapter 4 with me real quick. I want to read this passage of Scripture to you. James had something to say about illegitimate complaints. If you look at James chapter 4, let me read just a few verses from James 4. Now, this is the root. It's probably almost always the root of when we have unnecessary division and dissension in a church. This is the root of it right here. So I want you to stay with me. James 4. Listen to what James, James is talking about this very thing that's going on. Listen to what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James 4.1. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Amen. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you, flee, flee from you. Amen. See the connection that James just made? 
He's saying all this squabbling, all this complaining, all of this fighting, it's all about sinful, selfish desires that when we don't get what we want, then we create a problem. We have an illegitimate complaint, and we begin to create problems in the church simply because it's something going on with what we don't get. And let me tell you something. In today's culture, we have a consumer culture. How many of you ever heard that the customer's always what? Customer's always right. Well, guess what? We bring that mentality into the church. The church member's always what? Because you're a customer, right? You're a pay- if you're a good tither, you're a paying customer, right? Oh, I paid my tithe this month, so I better get what I want. Oh, I'm coming, and, and your job as pastors and leaders is to serve me. Now, you may not actively think that that's the way that you're living or that's the, that's the mentality that you're bringing. And I'm not accusing all of you of bringing that mentality, but if, if we're not careful because we have assumed this idea that we're always right, it's about serving me, it's about getting what I want, when I want it, instant gratification. If we're not careful, we bring that mentality into the church. And the first second that something doesn't go our way in the body of Christ, we're going to let somebody know about it. We're going to be upset about it. We're going to grumble about it. We're going to complain about it. Sometimes those are illegitimate complaints. Now, this was a legitimate complaint, but good leaders are going to be able to discern that. The second thing that you can understand about this is that passive leadership can be just as destructive to a church as unwarranted complaints. Let me say that again. Passive leadership can be just as destructive as unwarranted complaints. Let me tell you something about passive leadership. When leaders refuse to confront issues head on, if a leader turns a blind eye or just doesn't want to deal with um, conflict or they want to ignore problems in the church, they're setting that church up for catastrophe. That's exactly what they're doing. It's like the story of a pastor who had been pastoring a small country church for a very long time. And there, there, created, there began to be a little faction of people who just, they didn't want that pastor there anymore. And man, they, they just would, they, all they would do is sit around and talk about the pastor. We got to get this guy out of here. And finally, some of the deacons who knew this was going on came to the pastor and they're like, Pastor, what are you going to do about this problem in the church? These people, they're, they're stirring up the dissension. They're stirring up division. They want you out of here. What are you going to do about it? And the pastor just kept saying, hey, it'll work itself out. Don't worry about it. It'll work itself out. This went on for a few more weeks, a few more months. The deacons, would, some of the deacons who trusted the pastor came to him again. Pastor, what are you going to do about this problem? It's not going away. It's getting worse. There's more and more people who are following this group of people who want you out of here. It's going to be oh, fine. It'll take care of itself. It'll work itself out. Don't worry about it. Then one Wednesday night, the pastor came in to a surprise business meeting. All the church said, who wants to vote to keep the pastor or we're going to terminate him tonight? And a majority of people stood up and said, we vote to terminate the pastor. And he was just, he just couldn't believe it. And so as he kind of gathers himself and he's like, how did this happen? He starts to walk out the church and he looks at one of the deacons and he said, how did this happen? He said, don't worry, pastor. It worked itself out. Don't worry about it. It worked itself out. Just exactly what he kept saying it was going to do. Why? Because he was passive. He was not proactive. He didn't address the issue at hand in a biblical way. And so we have to be careful as leaders, you see, because there are legitimate complaints. There are legitimate problems. And I want you to hear my heart on this 
this morning is because I don't want you to think that your, that your need or your problem or your complaint is not legitimate to me or it, I don't want to hear that because I will and we will listen to you. And if you have a problem, I, pr- I pray that you would have the courage and the, and the love for Christ and his church to come to us as leaders and talk to us about it because we do want to hear that. We do want to make sure that if there's something going on that it's a legitimate situation that we need to make sure we take care of and we confront and we're not being passive in that, just letting things work themselves out. Because left unchecked, look, this is going to, it's not going to end well, is it? It never does. And that's what one of the responsibilities of leadership is all about. Now, how do you play into all of this? This is what's so very important. For conflict or offense, in any conflict or offense, everyone, circle everyone, if you have your listening guide, everyone, who does that include? That's you. That's you and me. Everyone is responsible to practice the biblical principles of resolving conflict. Turn with me real quick to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. So what's your role and responsibility when it comes to complaints and conflict in the church? Matthew 18, 15. The words of Jesus. Listen to what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay? Y'all tracking with me? If he listens to you, you've gained a brother or sister. Man, that would be great. But if he does not listen to you, print it on Facebook. No, no, wait, it didn't say that. It didn't say that. I'm sorry. If he does not listen to you, take one or two others. Maybe another trusted friend. Maybe a mutual friend between the two of you. Take one or two others. Take them with you. Look at what it says. So that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, so it's just not your word against theirs that you can bring other people in, into the situation. Let's, let's talk it out, okay? You, you've offended me. You've hurt me. You've done this. I tried to deal with you one-on-one. You didn't listen to me, so I didn't put it on Facebook, but I am bringing two or three people with me. We're going to talk it out. Now look at what it says. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church and put it on Facebook. No, I'm just kidding. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him to be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them and by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you know how many times we use that passage of Scripture talking about prayer? Don't we? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, I'm there among them, in the midst of them. Do y'all know in the context of that passage of Scripture, it's not talking about prayer. It's talking about confronting and resolving what? Conflict. And Jesus is saying to you and me that if we would just follow this simple biblical principle in the church, so many of our problems and complaints and unresolved issues would be nipped in the bud just like that, and we would just move on without it. And and the pastor would never even know about it. You know how wonderful that would be to know that you guys are willing and faithful to follow the words of Jesus, to carry out these biblical principles of resolving conflict so that y'all are being able to do this one-on-one, even if you have to bring a few other trusted friends along for the process to get this stuff worked out so that the pastor never even hears about it. 
Because you guys have began to resolve conflict on your own because you were supposed to have the Holy Spirit living in you. We're supposed to be obedient to the Word of God as individual church members. And so this would, this would resolve so many problems in the church if we would just be faithful to do this one thing. But you know what the hardest thing in the church is to do? Is that when somebody hurts your feelings, whether they know it or not, or when somebody lets you down, or they don't meet your expectations, instead of us going straight to them... We go to everybody else, and we tell our Sunday school class about it, or we tell our friend about it. Or, and and it's, not, it's not necessarily for the purposes of prayer most of the time. It's, it's not necessarily calling a friend and saying, look, I have a really tough situation. Somebody hurt my feelings. Will you pray with me about it? No, it's calling somebody and saying, can you believe what such and such did to me? Can you believe that they didn't like my idea when it came to this and that or vacation Bible school, whatever? Can you believe that that person did that to me? It's not for the purpose of accountability and prayer. It's more for the purpose to vent to other people when we should simply go to that person one-on-one. Please, church, let me encourage you. It's very hard. Is it uncomfortable? Is it easy? It's not. Is it biblical? It is. If we as God's people will just simply take that one principle... And we will obey it and follow it. I promise you, it will, it will nip 99% of the problems in the church in the bud right there, stop it in its tracks where we don't have to worry about how who said what and who said this and now this group's mad at that group and this person started this rumor and all this gossip's going on over here and this part of the church is upset at that part. All that stuff could be avoided. Amen. And we can avoid it if we would just simply follow and be obedient to the word of God. Now, I don't know exactly what happened here between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. I don't know if the Hellenists went directly to the Hebrews first and said, look, y'all are not treating us fairly. We need to get this thing worked out. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. We don't have that kind of an information. But something did get to the point where it was brought before the whole what? It was brought before the whole church. So they may have followed the biblical principles of church discipline and confronting and resolving conflict. I don't know for sure what happened here, but I do know it reached a point where it was brought to the leadership and it was such a big deal, it was such a divisive issue that they it said they called the whole church together. They had a whole church meeting to get this thing worked out. And the apostles had the wisdom and the wherewithal to know that this was something that needed to be addressed. And so it did reach that point. Now, Here's where we all are going to land. And this is our responsibility right now as we finish this passage. Having said everything that I've said, I want you to walk away with this right here. Every member of the church, every member is called to be a servant leader. Every member of the church is called to be a servant leader. Now, as a, as a leader, as your leader, as a pastor in the church, and my role in the church is that I need to be able to trust you and delegate things to you or else I'm going to deteriorate as a leader. And this happens to pastors over and over and over. Now, some pastors bring it upon themselves. I've been around men who are great men of God, who love the Lord Jesus, who love the church, but they were micromanagers. They had to have their hand on every single thing that was happening in the church. It was just their nature. Guess what happens to those pastors after about three or four years? They're done. They're burned out. 
and they have, may have all this resentment or you know, uh, whatever it may be in their heart, but at the end of the day, a lot of it was brought on themselves because they simply just weren't able to trust their church and delegate things to their church and allow their people to be servant leaders. But there are also some churches who have pastors who want to delegate to their church, who want to entrust more ownership and leadership to their church, and the church just doesn't want to step up and take that responsibility. So then what happens to that pastor? Three or four years, he's done. Do you know what the average tenure of a pastor is in, the light in America today? For, for church to church, it's about two to three years before they leave another church and go somewhere else. But there are many pastors today, after about eight years of ministry, guess what they're doing? They're walking away. They're saying, I can't do this anymore. I quit. Walking away from the calling of God on their life because they are so spent that they have nothing left to give. Now, again, some of that may be themselves, but some of that may just be the mentality of the church and the culture that we've created in the church. So what's the solution? The solution is everybody in this building today or anybody that may be listening into a podcast later on this week needs to understand that the way that we resolve the potential for conflict and burnout and all of these things that happens in the church is that everyone here is called to be a servant leader because the primary quality of a disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to be a servant leader. You see what's happening in Acts 6? What does it say in verse 7? And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. Don't miss that. Growth by addition is good. Growth by multiplication is what? It's better. And that's what's happening here in the early church is that the number of disciples weren't being added. They were, it was multiplying because true discipleship is discipleship by multiplication because true discipleship to be a follower of Jesus Christ is learning how to be a servant but also learning how to be a leader because a disciple is not only willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of their local church, but they also should be bringing somebody else along with them and leading them, Right? And then as they lead them and teach them how to follow Jesus Christ, what should that next generation of disciples be doing? Leading somebody else before you look up after generation after generation of disciple, it's multiplication, it's growth by multiplication. That's the way that the church grew so fast in the early church. So the problem with many churches at this point is that some members, they just fail to launch. They just never really get off the diving board. They just never really get off the launching pad. They stay where they're comfortable and never really take on that, that level of servant leadership that God is calling you and me to do. Now remember, they chose seven men, and look at the qualities of these seven men. They chose seven men to resolve this conflict. Look at the qualities. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Now, if you're here and you have the Spirit of God in you, you have all that you need to be a servant leader. Are you hearing me this morning? If you're here today and you're born again, that means who's living inside of you? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you have all that you need. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, to be the servant leader that God's calling you to be. So that's how we become servants. That's how we can 
address and resolve so many of these conflicts and issues and problems in the church where there's burnout and there's resentment and there's jealousy and there's division is that if all of us took on the mindset that I'm going to be like Jesus Christ who said this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as servant leaders, here's the priority. There should be a priority on prayer and the preaching of the word of God. But hear me, every ministry in the life of the church is important. Listen to me. There should be always a priority on prayer and the preaching of the word of God, but every ministry in the life of the church is important. The apostles came up and they said, okay, listen, here's what we're going to do. The, the widows and the orphans and the people in need, they need to be taken care of. This is an important ministry in the life of the church. And we're going to appoint other people to take that burden and to take ownership and leadership of that ministry because it is an important ministry. It's not that the apostles were above that. It's not that the apostles stood back and said, oh, you know what, I'm too, I'm too good to serve tables. I'm, I'm, I'm too important to be down there with the common folks serving tables. It's not that they were too above serving the tables. It's just that they knew that their role and their giftedness to serve the life of the church in its greatest capacity was to do what? To pray and to preach the what? Preach the word of God. That was their calling. That was their role. That's how they served as servant leaders. The apostles were primarily responsible to pray, to be devoted to prayer, and to be preaching the word of God. Pastors that deviate from these two essential components are not fulfilling the God-given role in the church. Let me say this. As members of Christ's church, you should want nothing to distract or divide your pastors from the faithful commitment to pray daily and preach the word of God with authority and with the Spirit, Holy Spirit power. Amen. What do you want most for your pastor? You should want most for your pastor, the, the primary preachers and teachers of the church, to have the time and the, and the, the dedication and, and the commitment, the devotion to be able to spend quality time with the Lord every day in prayer and to be able to spend quality time preparing messages like this to be able to feed the flock, to be able to teach the word of God faithfully and consistently day after day and week after week. That's what you should want most out of your pastor. Does that mean that he should not be a people person or he shouldn't be at other events or he shouldn't be helping at other things that are going on in the church? No, it doesn't mean that. But it just means ultimately, if other things in the church are pulling your pastor and distracting your pastor and occupying his time to the point where he's neglecting prayer and he's neglecting preaching the word, then something is wrong. And you should not want that for your pastor. Amen. We know how important the word of God is to the church and prayer. One commentator said, the word is central to the church's growth. So central that Satan will use a congregation's expectations and traditions to distract ministers from what is required for effective proclamation of the word. Y'all hear that? The word of God is so central that if the enemy can do anything he can do to distract pastors from that responsibility, he will do it. But the word of God is not preached at the exclusion of mercy ministry. Just because it wasn't the 
apostles' role and responsibility to preach and, t- uh, excuse me, to serve tables doesn't mean that serving tables was not important. And that's what's so important that I want to stress to you this morning is that it is a both-and approach. The church must exercise both preaching and practice, neither at the exclusion of the other, okay? Very important that we understand that. So we are to be hearers of the word and what? And doers. So that's why when we have Jackson Avenue ministry where our dedicated people are going every second and fourth Sunday to feed people on Jackson Avenue, or we have help group here on the third Saturday, and we have other ministries in the life of this church where we're helping people, we're meeting needs, we're feeding people, we're clothing people, we're showing the love of Christ to people, whatever it may be. Those ministries are necessary, important, and needed, and they need to continue to go. But we should not do one at the exclusion of the other. We need both of them. And that's exactly what the apostles were teaching right here in Acts chapter 6. I need to finish up. By the way, this is probably the development of the deacon or of, of deacons in the church. The church polity hadn't really began at this point. That things were starting to develop as far as church government, elders and deacons. I think this is probably a picture of the first deacon body. And, and we, we don't have time to get into all that, but I do think that's probably the best interpretation of this passage of Scripture. So here's your last thing for you this morning. The greatest contribution you can make in the kingdom of God is to find your role, faithfully serve Jesus in your local church, and allow your pastors and teachers to fulfill their role of proclaiming the gospel. Amen. Do you know why the church grew so fast in Acts chapter 6, the early church? The reason that the church continued to grow at the rate that it grew is because, look at what it says, verse 7. The word of God continued to what? To increase. Don't make any mistake about it. The reason the church was increasing in number is because the word of God continued to increase. Now, there's two types of growth. Two types of growth. There's numerical growth. I pray that I live to see this church right here packed at full capacity again. Because when the word of God is being preached and we're faithfully praying and we're trusting God and you guys are taking ownership, being servant leaders in the body of Christ, then we're reaching people and we're, we're witnessing, we're being salt and light in our communities and our neighborhoods. We should be reaching people for Jesus Christ. And I do pray that we see numerical growth again quickly, soon, I pray that we see that. But until we start to see very noticeable numerical growth, you know what other kind of growth we should be doing? We should be growing deeper as disciples spiritually. There's two types of growth. When the word of God is being preached and we're a prayerful church, what's going to happen? You as a Christian, as a servant leader, you should be growing deeper and deeper and deeper in your faith and your commitment and your walk with Jesus Christ. So there's always growth going on. We're either growing deeper and getting our roots planted deeper. And you know what? A tree that has deep roots and and very mature Christians is a tree that can hold a little bit more weight, isn't it? Sometimes I think God doesn't allow us to experience the numerical growth because he knows if a bunch of people flooded in here next week, we wouldn't be prepared for it, would we? What are we going to do with all these people? Who's going to disciple them? Who's responsible for them? Pastor, 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 what are we going to do? 
You see what I'm saying? So we need to make sure we're growing and we're getting deep and more grounded in the word of God so that when God does begin to grow this church numerically, we're ready to take that on and we're ready to disciple these people and we're ready to, to assimilate them into the kingdom work. That's what this is all about. As we go, I'll ask our praise team to come on up. If you, if you look at your bulletin, I don't know how many of you guys follow the listening guide on your, on your bulletin. If you do that and you have that, somebody's following back there. Um, I made a mistake. I put last week's application on this week's bulletin. So if you, you, some of you maybe not even caught that because you didn't read last week's application. But if you, read, if you read the bulletin at the bottom, it says something about something I said last week. I can't even remember what it was. But here's your application. So I want you to do this. This will be good for you. Scratch it out if you have a pen. Just scratch it out, whatever's at the bottom of your bulletin. It says, as we go, down there. And this is your application for today, okay? I'm going to encourage you and challenge you this morning, Christ Church. I need you to prayerfully find your role as a servant leader in this church. Some of you are already doing that. We already have people who are spirit-filled, of good reputation, and you guys are servant leaders in the life of this church. Thank you. Some of you guys hadn't quite launched yet. Some of you are still a little bit caught in, in, the, in the consumer mentality, okay? This is your opportunity to see. If I want to see the kingdom of God expand and I want to see the glory of God just proclaimed here at Christ Church and in this, on this corner right here in Bartlett, Tennessee, we see God do something that he's never done before, then my role and my responsibility is to pray and ask God, where is my role as a servant leader in this church? And if you will do that and you will allow your pastor teachers to do what we're supposed to do, and I thank you for giving us that freedom to do that, then guess what you're going to do? You will continue to promote the gospel for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. I hope and pray that we begin to see numerical growth. Do you have a desire, Christ Church, to see growth? I hope you do. I hope we're not complacent. There's plenty of empty seats right here. Just think if everybody in this room brought one person to church next Sunday. We would double in size in a week. Is that a hard thing to ask? Just grab one person and say, I'd love for you. I'll come pick you up. Meet me at 10 o'clock. I'll I'll have some coffee waiting for you. Do whatever you got to do. But sometimes we just get complacent. We get stuck in a rut. And we forget that this is the ministry of the word of God that is so powerful. The word of God that changes hearts and lives. That says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for whoever believes. And sometimes you just have to get somebody in, in, in the audience where they can hear the gospel preached for the first time and their life can be changed forever. And that's when we begin to see people come to faith and the kingdom begins to grow. Let me encourage you, church. Be that person this week. Grab somebody. Bring them to church. Invite them along. Do whatever you have to do to reach them. Because if you're not doing it, who is? If you're not doing it, who is? I want you guys to stand as we pray, and we're going to close up this, this session with a, one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite hymns. It's called Holy Spirit, because we can't do anything without him. And so I want to pray for you right now as before we sing, Holy Spirit, we invite you, we welcome you here. 
we know that you have saved us, you live within us, and you've given us a great privilege to be servant leaders in your church. You've gifted us. Everybody in this room that knows you and has a relationship with you has a gift, many spiritual gifts, something to offer. And I pray, God, that if they're not using those gifts, that they would prayerfully consider, Lord, how they could be used in the life of this church. So, Lord, until we experience the numerical growth that we want to see for your glory, may you continue to grow us deeper as individuals. And, Lord, help us to be ready to make disciples and bring others along. Lord, I thank you and I love you and I praise you in Jesus' holy and perfect name. And all God's people said.